Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. Welcome to the holiday edition of Live's radio show, which reflects back on a few guests from this past year. Although impossible to capture the full spectrum of this past year's guests, in this show I shall reflect back on just a few of the many highlights from the past year, with a focus on film and some incredible personal stories. And, of course, having enjoyed several shows featuring talented musicians, we shall hear from them, including some of the music they performed live in the studio. Let's start with the first show that aired in 2019, featuring my conversation with Matt Green, the subject of the documentary film The World Before Your Feet. For over six years, and for reasons he can't explain, Matt Green has been walking every block of every street in New York City, a journey of more than 8,000 miles. Matt and I spoke via cell phone as he sat, ironically, on a hillside in San Francisco looking out at the bay. I asked Matt to share with me some of what his experiences had revealed to him about people. I guess, you know, I built a lot of relationships in this, doing this weird thing. I mean, you know, we'd, we'd, I'd meet random people and we'd walk 20 miles on a given day. And um, it's such an unusual but wonderful way to meet people because by the end of the first day, you know a lot about them and you've been through this kind of unique experience together, which really bonds you together. The real people-based message of of all the walking is we all want the same things in the world. We all want to feel respected and we all want to feel loved. And we want people to, to care about us and to know who we are and to be interested in us. I think when you take that message to heart, it all of a sudden becomes very easy to relate to all different people around the world. But at the same time, I do know that we are all afraid of more than we need to be afraid of, even if you are not someone who has has the privilege that I do um, and, and has to be worried about more things than I do, there are still things that you're worried about that you don't need to be. Like, that's the kind of constant theme I hear from other people, um, people who, who do a lot of traveling, a lot of long walking, is that people are, are better than you think that they would be, you know, even if it's more difficult for you than it is for me. The lesson you come away with is, is people are better than you expected. And so I think for all of us, there's a, a lesson to be learned in, in figuring out it, that at least a good chunk of our fears are unfounded. People are kinder on the whole than you expect. Film has been an interesting part of my own 2019, as well as that for Live's radio show. This year, I spoke with various people associated with film, including directors Chanel Elaine and Amy Adrian, and Dr. Diana Martinez, the education director at Filmstreams, a non-profit art house theatre in Omaha. This year, Diana has been my tutor for a variety of film courses, including a five-week deep dive into the films of Sofia Coppola. 
I asked Diana why watching film at a theater still seems so vital and entertaining. I want to give like a really grandiose statement for it, but it's also just like really cool to just see something so aesthetically excessive on a huge screen in Dolby sound. And I think that that aesthetic experience is something that people like for some reason downplay all the time. It's still a really freaking cool way to watch something. And that experience should be like cherished. Amy Adrian is the director of the award-winning debut feature Half the Picture, which celebrates the groundbreaking work of women film directors. As with Diana Martinez, I asked Amy why film was so important. There are so many stories that are left untold that are like interesting and dramatic and funny and surprising and fresh. And, you know, I think it's just a shame for our culture. And it's certainly a shame for the business that they haven't supported those stories more. And I think we're seeing some of that in film and certainly in TV. And you just you know, different kind of creators are telling different kinds of stories. And it's feels like a revelation, like, oh, I didn't know this world. I don't know these people, but I'm fascinated. And as you know, Roger Ebert says, films are an empathy machine. Half the picture has been shown in cinemas across the world and at numerous film festivals and is also available to stream online. I asked Amy why she had made the film. So, you know, I do think in a corny way, projects kind of call to you, you know, it wasn't strategic. It, you know, if anything, this was a, probably a not very, it was, it was um, not that it was bad for my career, but you're calling out a lot of powerful forces in the business, you know, who I eventually want to hire me, you know, in this business. So it's in some ways it was like not the smartest move, but you just, you, you make films because they call to you in the subject you know, the material and the story you want to tell is just, it kind of takes over your life. And so it wasn't even really a choice. It was just like, I'm, this is something I'm thinking and talking about all the time. And like, I have to make this film. As Amy Adrian shares in Half the Picture, the business of films and the practice of making them is challenging for women and minorities. There are particular challenges that women face. And the women we interview were very honest about the self-doubt that they encountered about the frustrations of not getting work and, you know, seeing their male counterparts thrive when they've really, really struggled, even, even the most talented, the most successful of them. Yeah. So that's, that's what the film is about. And it was important for me to make because I just admire these women like crazy. And, and I wanted to find out how they made it and kind of answer the question for myself, is it possible? So you have directors who are established women who we interview in our film who are directing television shows, television pilots now, and they still tell me, oh my gosh, I was just directing a pilot and the director of photography kept rolling his eyes at me or the prop person kept being uh, overly solicitous or just, you know, these kind of passive aggressive or aggressive attitudes that women face on set because I think you know, the director is such a position of power on set. And I think a lot of men are just unfamiliar dealing with women in that kind of role. And and it, you know, elicits some kind of strange behavior, you know, and so that you get some situations of sabotage on set, which is insane. So when you have some people on set who are not supporting the director, in addition to all of the challenges you already have, it's just so frustrating. 
you know, it's shameful that women who've proven themselves and whose film, you know, debut films have been nominated for Academy Awards and, you know, whether it's Catherine Hardwick with Twilight or Sam Taylor Johnson with Fifty Shades of Grey spawned these huge franchises. I mean, those women are hustling for their next jobs. That would just never happen for a male director. I find that frustrating, but I also have so much respect for these women. They are not, you know, going into their bunker and crying and saying like, this is bullshit. You know, this wouldn't happen to men. They're not doing that. They don't complain. They don't whine. They feel their frustration and they keep making movies and they keep hustling and they keep developing creative projects. And that's a lesson certainly for me and for all of us. Like the road is not easy. You just need to be mentally tough and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Seeing films by women directors shouldn't be like eating your vegetables. I mean, you're drawn to what you're drawn to and you're drawn to good storytelling. So, you know, I would say also when you do see work by women or uh, people of color that, you know, probably don't get the same kind of marketing push that other films or TV shows do. We have a lot of power now with social media. So shout it out. Tell people. I couldn't help asking Diana Martinez what other film-related careers she would have chosen if not for being an educator. I was surprised by her answer. Uh, I would be an agent. They are a part of the industry that people rarely think of as having creative control or decisions, and they completely do. So, for example, there are like three to five agents in all of America that handle 85% of the top comedians in the country. Will Ferrell's agent at one point was the same as like Vince Vaughn and all these other guys that he was working with. And there are certain contractual decisions they can make called packaging, which if you can put them together, sell their products to a studio and they get tons and tons of money. And that's how we got like Dodgeball and Anchorman and like an entire cycle of films that really changed comedic sensibilities at that time. So agents have a lot more creative control than we think. One of the distinct pleasures of this last year has been the variety of musical guests that have joined me not only in conversation, but who have also performed our own tiny desk concerts live in the studio. I'll look back on some of them during today's show, starting now with Jocelyn. Recently signed to the global music publisher BMG, Jocelyn had just released Speak Up, her first single with that label, and has since our conversation released her new single, Good To Be Me. I asked Jocelyn if she had always been aware of her talent and had she had to work at it. Yeah, I think I've always had it. I just had to practice it. I just need to nourish it and give it some love and um, let it, you know, let it grow, let it flourish, you know. Um, Everything takes work ethic, hard work and lots of time. I think everybody has something so magnificent and powerful within them. It's just about what are you going to do to make it even louder? And that's kind of what happened. I couldn't, my brother told me in the beginning, Jocelyn, you suck at singing. Like, we got to get you in choir class. <laughs> and so that's when I had, you know, I was like, all right, like, if you say this can make me a better singer, then I'll do it, you know. Um, and that goes for anything and anybody. If you want to become a doctor, if you want to become, you know, a mechanic, you just have to work and practice. Repetition, repetition. 
there's this one video my <laughs> my um choir teacher uh Jason Stevens he said he would show us videos in class periodically and one time he showed us a video of I don't remember the basketball player's name but they were in like an interview and he's sitting up and this guy didn't show up to practice like three times and he was getting interviewed about it and he was like come on man like we're talking about practice have you seen the, that video you have but he like repeats it like 30 times and then he's like oh practice like he's like yeah so you got to practice you know cuz at first he was careless didn't care and he's like practicing a big deal but then as he was saying it he's like oh wait it is a big deal y'all need to go to practice I think um, loving the process. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gary Vee, but he talks about the process. So you've heard of him? Yeah. You know, um, he really dives in and I and I agree with him. You have to love what you're doing. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know what you're going for. Find the right team. Find the right people who, are, who will pick you up, lift you up and go with it. But you have to fall in love with the process and you have to be willing to do the work. And if you don't want to, then... It's just end game. It's over. Um, nothing's ever easy. That's why, you know, we have, like, if if everything was easy, then everybody would be doing it, and it wouldn't be as fun. Again, maybe this is a good point to stop and ask if you'd be willing to perform for us. Right now? Yeah, is that okay? Cool. Let's do it. <laughs> this song is called Better For It. <laughs> Sometimes things just don't go as you planned it. Just hold your head up high till you've landed. You might feel like you're done, knocked down and broken, but don't you give up. Just don't you give up what keeps the sun hanging up in the sky. What makes a broken heart feel better in time? I wish I had the answers to make everything fine. Keep your head high, you'll be alright. You'll be better, better for it. Better, better for it. You're shining in this moment so beautiful now. You'll be better, better for it. Better, better for it. You're shining in this moment so beautiful now. Hey. Dreams written on your heart, yeah, I see them blooming. Each battle, every scar, it's your revolution. It's dark before the dawn, no morning is coming. Keep your head high, you'll be alright. What keeps the sun hanging up in the sky? What makes a broken heart feel better in time? I wish I had the answers to make everything fine. Keep your head high, you'll be alright. You'll be better, better for it. Better, better for it. You're shining in this moment so beautiful now. You'll be better, better for it. Better, better for it. You're shining in this moment so beautiful now. Right now, just let it be. Cause someday you will see. It's all meant to be. Don't worry. Take a deep breath and let it go. Cause right now you're home. Still got miles to go. Don't hurry. You'll be better, 
it better, better for it. You're shining in this moment, so beautiful now. You'll be better, better for it, better, better for it. You're shining in this moment, so beautiful now. Better, better for it. Whoa, whoa. It is perhaps not quite accurate to describe as a highlight the intense vulnerability and intimacy of the personal stories shared with me by some of my guests last year, yet I'm deeply grateful for the candour and communion shown to me by many of them. C. Loof shared his journey with gender dysphoria, transgender and sexuality issues, addiction and abuse, as well as his advocacy. When we spoke, I confessed to see I had difficulty trying to understand what it was like to feel a mismatch between gender identity and sex assigned at birth, and asked if he could describe his experience. I suppose for me it was probably different than it is for a lot of people, or, or maybe not, but I, I just, I always believed that I was male, so for me it was more of a heartbreak, because when I was told, because I wasn't told any different for most of my, well, for all of my life until I was, you know, I, I was a big rough and tumble kid. When I was born, I was 11 pounds. Um, <laughs> he, he just made a face, audience. <laughs> um, so I was a rough and tumble kid. I was, I was bigger than my three month old cousin. I, I was sturdy. I was a tomboy anyway, is what people would call me. And I, I just grew up thinking I was one of the boys, you know, and for five years, for all of my life, you know, until they did. And then I was heartbroken. Um, so I, I believed what I believed, what I knew to be true until somebody told me that I was wrong. So for me, it was heartbreak. And then it was, um, just continued heartbreak and frustration and anger because I had to stuff down what I knew to be was right for either conforming so that I could survive or, um, having to do for others all the time. Um, because when mom left, I had to take care of my sister to survive. I had to conform to what my father wanted. You know, so it was always having to stuff down what I wanted and what I needed to do for everybody else. And sometimes that just meant killing a part of myself and, and hurting it so badly so that it didn't raise its head so that I could, I could just function. Um, and that's kind of like, it's just having a part of you be so, so dead. I mean, imagine having a passion for something, a, a talent or a passion for something or a joy for something that you just want to do so badly, but you know that you can't. Um, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but, but if, you, if you play an instrument or if you paint or something and you're told that you could never do that again and you're so destroyed about it, you know, so you can't even think about it. Um, it it's sort of like that, I suppose, but, but, but different, I guess. What did you think was happening to you as your body started to make pretty ordinary biological changes and that just didn't fit your understanding of, of oh, how I, things Oh, I knew. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm smart. I, I knew. Um, I, I was over-sexualized, um, so I, I wasn't ignorant. Um, it, 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 was, it wasn't a case of not knowing what's happening to me. It was just a case of knowing what couldn't happen. Yeah. It, uh, there, was no, there was no misconceptions and there was no... Um, there was no wondering or anything like that. I just knew it couldn't happen. Chris Hochstetler 
is the Dean of Innovation and Creativity for Hastings College, prior to which his life included a 20-year decorated military career, serving in various combat and other assignments around the world. Hochstetler's many military decorations include the Legion of Merit, America's seventh highest military award. Our conversation included Hochstetler's military, professional and creative life, but we started with his childhood experiences of being homeless. Yeah, well, I guess I'd preface this by saying for a long time I just didn't talk about my childhood. It was very difficult to talk about. Um, in fact, I think it was probably some years after I was married that I even told my wife the entire story. As my bio said, I was born to a single mother in Grand Island, Nebraska, and that was the the uh, mid-60s. You know, life out there is a little bit different now, but in some ways not so much. It's still, there's still a lot of rural poverty across Nebraska. I think sometimes we don't, we don't consider that. Um, but back then it was, it was particularly tough. There was not even a homeless shelter in Grand Island, Nebraska. There is now a wonderful place called Hope Harbor. But nonetheless, we were homeless much of my childhood. Uh, lived in cars. I remember one car vividly. I think it was a 1952 Chevrolet. It was fun to remember because now, because there were the floorboards in the back seat where we spent most of the time were completely rusted through, so you could definitely see the road and the air came through those rust marks. But we lived in the car for the most part. We would bounce from home to home occasionally and just long enough to, you know, find uh, the, have the landowner figure out that we didn't have enough money for rent, and then we'd be evicted and on the street again. Um, my mother loved myself and my two siblings dearly. She just did not have the faculties, the mental capacity. Uh, I, I do believe that in today's world, she probably would have been diagnosed as mentally ill. Uh, but there were absolutely no resources for that. Um, she was a bright lady, and uh, I can often remember some pretty cold winters where we would just hang out at the Edith Abbott Memorial Library in Grand Island, which had actually just been built at that point in time, just to stay warm. And fortunate for us, you know, we didn't get booted out by the librarians. And I think that that was the first place that I really discovered how creativity can really take you away from circumstance and how you can exercise that part of your brain where things just don't seem quite as bad as they really are. I found Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and read it for the first time in that library. It was probably an abridged edition, I'm sure. But I've probably read Treasure Island maybe 30, 40 times since then through the years. Um, and I could be just a little boy running away from pirates or chasing pirates versus uh, a little boy living in a car, you know, without uh, much to eat. So childhood was pretty tough. Um, my sister and I, who she was a little bit older, we would go out on missions to scour the streets for pop bottles so that we could turn those in at the local grocery store to try to get maybe a pack of hot dogs or a can of green beans for all four of us to eat. And that would be like the entire day's fair. Uh, eventually, the state of Nebraska caught up with my mother because we just weren't consistently in school. And they took us away from her and they placed us in foster care in more western Nebraska, out by Broken Bow. And uh, spent over three years, almost four years, in formative years. I was about 11 years old when we were taken. And uh, until the 
state Supreme Court of Nebraska determined that you can't take a woman's children because she is homeless, impoverished, or eccentric, as she was diagnosed by court documents. So we were returned. Were you aware during your childhood that your lifestyle was not like other children's lifestyles? And how did that manifest itself if you were aware of that? Well, I, I, kids, kids can be pretty cruel. You know, there's just, no, there's just no filter. I think that's part of that. You haven't had time to develop a filter. And a filter is really, I think, developed through life experiences. Well, children don't have those life experiences to be able to, to filter those cruelties. So, yeah, we were very aware that our life was completely different. You know, we didn't have clothes to wear to school, even when we were in school. And, and you know, it was pretty brutal at times. Um, nonetheless, I think we were all pretty, pretty bright kids. We did okay in school. We didn't do stellar. I probably could have been a much better student had I had a little bit of a, a background uh, or a little bit of backdrop of support to that. Um, we were returned home to my mother when I was uh, getting ready to be a junior in high school. And so the last couple of years or year and a half there with my mother, I worked 40 hours a week and um, did just what I needed to do to get through high school and graduate which I did, and had a couple of folks who really took me under their wing and said, you know, we believe in you. And, and in fact, that word believe is probably my most favorite word right now. And, and when you walk in my home, currently that's the first word that you see. I've got kind of a, a wooden cutout artistic version of the word believe that that's the first thing you encounter when you walk in my home. Back to some of the show's musical guests this past year, this time with singer, songwriter, guitarist Andrew Bailey. Here is one of the songs he performed live in the studio as part of an acoustic set. All right, I think we're close. Um, so I'm going to play a song now. I'm going to play one from the record. Um, this is called, uh, it's called A Slow Demise. It's a slow dim 
Andrew Bailey's album Wasteland is a complex, textured musical work that invites and demands attention. In a modern era of short attention spans, I spoke with Andrew about this aspect of his album. It feels like it's a full-on five-course experience as opposed to a fast food snack. I like that. I like that. I might use that. (laughs) Five-course meal. (laughs) So we, we talked before about like the intentionality where you demand some patience and attention of your listener because the first song on the album, Mr. Sunshine, is over seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And how many albums now construct themselves around an opening song which demands that well, of a listener? And, and I, uh, I released that as a single too. 
so so that was that was the first single um uh, and and it was uh, uh seven minutes long and honestly um i mean i feel like in some ways you know obviously i think i think if if, if somebody likes my music I, I love it and i've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the record so far um but also at the same time it's not really my job to I don't feel like it's my job to necessarily hold anybody's hand. You know, if you get bored um, uh, uh, and you don't want to come with me, then that's fine. You know, uh, that doesn't hurt me at all. Um, but I think, yeah, for people that enjoy that patient approach, you know, uh, and it's not all super patient, but yeah, you're right. Mr. Sunshine is a patient song. Um, it's for uh, my cousin, uh Lowell Ensel, uh, as he rests in peace. But uh, I felt like that one especially couldn't just be a little blip of a song. You know, it was like that that song is more about the energy that's created uh, from those sounds, you know, than it is than it is um, the structure and, and, and the lyrics. And, the, and it's, it's just everything together kind of had to be that way. I guess. Uh, we just had to live there for a while before we could move on. One of the year's most vibrant conversations was with Nebraska Shakespeare's interim artistic director, Sarah Lynn Brown, and Katie becker Cologne, director of education. Nebraska Shakespeare this year had an all-female cast for its Shakespeare on the Green performance of All's Well That Ends Well, and also had a female lead in the title role of Hamlet. Katie and Sarah each reflected on the impact of playing diverse roles and, indeed, how roles can inform their lives. Here's Katie. I was playing Cassius and Brittany Proya was playing Brutus, and I think I like hugged her and like kissed her on the side of the head. And it was a level of intimacy after a pretty, pretty bad argument that you don't see with men, which is a whole nother thing. The fact that men in this country are not allowed that sort of affection on a daily basis is like a whole thing to unpack. But we can do that as women. We have the liberty to do that. And if we take it, we have the liberty to do that if we take it. I played Brutus as a woman. Cassius was a very strong, physically strong and larger than me man. And Julius Caesar was a man and Mark Antony was a man. That was the first time that I really had to take a look at what limitations I had put on myself in the world because I was female. And I had to basically take myself mentally to the mat to go, why do you continue to believe that you are not worthy of all of these big opportunities just because you're a woman? And here's Sarah Lynn Brown talking about how roles have informed her. I have been extraordinarily lucky to play some of Shakespeare's meatier female roles and some male roles as well. Every time I do that, another part of me gets lit up that I didn't know was there, and then it can't go away. 
they're a part of you. So when you go into a board meeting and you're like, all right, Lady Mac, let's, let's, let's see, let's see where you are. <laughs> come um, out to play. Come out. Uh, so you, you find, um, you live in that strength and you, uh, your body starts to feel that you get that muscle memory of what it is to stand up for something that you really believe in and to fight for something. In some ways, these personal and performative stories reflected the kind of resilience I had heard from film director Amy Adrian and other astonishing guests. One of those was Brigitte McQueen Shu, the executive director of the Union for Contemporary Art. One of the most caring and joyful people I have met, Brigitte has had to endure much to emerge as one of Omaha's most vital people. Um, so when Teen People Folded, um, I was in a lovely situation where I was had been making New York salary, living in Omaha, um, was offered this severance package, realized that I wanted to make this transition to working in the arts. So I opened uh, Pulp in Benson. And so Pulp was essentially a small handmade stationery, sort of bespoke stationery shop that had this contemporary gallery attached to it where I would show works of contemporary art um, that were focused on paper and wood. And it was lovely. I loved everything about it. I invested my life savings in it. Um, it was my everything. I felt like it was wildly successful. It was fun. It was an amazing adventure. Um, the downside of it is that I had the <laughs> unfortunate timing of opening it right at the dawn of the recession. So everything was lovely when I opened in 2007. By the time we were in the middle of 2008 going into 2009, everything was falling apart in the country economically. Um, and so that also had an impact on my business. I was not selling art and I was not selling cards. The shop was taking care of itself, but it wasn't taking care of me. So in that process, I lost my house and I lost my car and I lost my life savings. I almost went bankrupt. It was a horrible, horrible time. But I learned a lot about failure and I learned a lot about being at the bottom. I learned that when you hit bottom, you can either lie there and give up or you can bounce. And sometimes when you bounce, you bounce higher than where you fell from. And I feel very much so that that is what happened to me. Brigitte's drive and desire to seize life was evident. I will never be 80 and look back and say, oh my gosh, I wish I had done that thing because I'm doing the, the thing. Ever giving, Brigitte also shared these hopes for her community. I can tell you what my hopes are for our community in five years. I hope that in five years, the conversations that we are having around disparities and inequities in North Omaha is not a conversation to be had anymore. I feel like there are some really incredible movements afoot, um, some things bubbling that will bring true revitalization to the community. And I am excited about all of those things around housing and transportation and economic development, some really exciting things lie ahead for us. And I hope that we are open and able to embrace those things um, and that we are all participants in bringing them to fruition. During the year, I spoke with author and bookseller Ted Wheeler, the organiser, with his wife, of the Omaha Lit Fest. He read from an excerpt from his novel, Kings of Broken Things, drawn from the horrifying episode 100 years ago of the lynching of Will Brown. 
this terrible centenary and some of the appalling hate crimes and racism evident across the country was marked too by Nebraska State poet Matt Mason in this reading. So it's called I Too by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. Returning to my musical guests, the 100th episode of Lies Radio Show featured the truly delightful and amazingly talented folk singer and songwriter Andrea von Kampen. I asked her where she found inspiration for her songs. Um, I've always loved to read. I've just, I just love stories. I don't know. I feel like if I didn't do this, I'd be telling stories in some other way. And maybe I will someday still. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I just love love that and I can't experience everything and so for me being able to take a lot of experiences from characters and books and and kind of being able to think about that for a while and then say okay I kind of want to write a song that has to do with this or I I feel like this relationship is important or this character's story is important and then telling that Um, and for me it's sort of it's sort of like a great songwriting exercise but then you can kind of elaborate on it and and make it more personal to you as well. I had a songwriting lesson a couple years ago with an amazing songwriter named Gabriel Kahane, and he had said to me, you know, really push the boundaries of where you get your inspiration from. Cross-pollinate. Don't just listen to a record and say, I love that record. I want to write songs just like that person. You know, like, look at a painting and say, what would I, how would I write a song about this painting? Or read a book. And that was a good push, and it really made me think about, you know, where inspiration can come from and and how to keep it interesting and new. Andrea explained how she had recently reached a tipping point where she committed full-time to her music and performance. I asked about business aspects of her musical career. One feature of which she explained were house concerts. So we were talking before we came on air just a little bit about touring and house shows as part of the Mm -hmm. business of being this DIY artist. So. How does that form part of this mix and and what do those performing opportunities feel like and and look like for you? Yeah, so house shows have been so cool because um, there's a lot of amazing people right now who are saying, you know, we see that for the indie artist, venue breakdown doesn't always work. Venues can take a lot, you know, and when you're new and you don't know how many tickets you're going to sell, it's kind of a gamble and you can spend a lot of nights only making, you know, 50 bucks and you can't, you can't tour on that. And there's been some incredible people who are just music lovers who have said, you know, we're going to invite our 50 friends and we're not going to take a cut and we're going to sit here and we're going to listen to these artists. And that for a folk singer is amazing to know people are coming to listen means the world. So yeah, I've been really lucky to get connected with a lot of these house show people all across the country. And these people most of the time are amazing. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> we, um, Can we have uh, the well, name and address? Yeah, right, Where did right. it go Let wrong? Let me tell you the one that was not amazing. No. Um, but for our last, for my last tour this last summer, I did put out a, like a little thing that said, here are the days I don't have shows. Here's where I'm going to be. 
if you want to do a house show, contact me. So a little risky because essentially you just have strangers who you have no idea who they are saying, yeah, come to my house. But it, it worked out really well. Andrea performed live in the studio as part of an acoustic set. Here is one of the songs she played for us. So this one is Julia. Julia lays in the sunshine and waits Out by the water in the bay And the sun goes down and the sun goes down Where is her lover? The day is breaking over the water Julia moves to the city too Find a new kind of memory, fix her mind And the sun goes down, and the sun goes down She won't find another Julia is hung up on her lover There have been so many wonderful guests this past year and too many to include in this show. To hear last year's shows, you can listen back to the podcasts via the show's webpage, livesradioshow.com. Also, I'd invite you to subscribe to the podcast and hear the amazing guests lined up for 2020. My best wishes for the new year and, to play us out, here are a few outtakes from the past year's guests. Just like this radio show today, I'm just going to, I'm here, I'm supposed to just talk to this guy, Stuart, and it's supposed to be, you know, and you just think, I'll just go and I'll just talk and it'll be fine. It'll be great. It'll be the top rated radio show of the year. And, but it, it uh, but um, <laughs>
It's going to be a mess. <laughs> Got it. Sidebar, just edit that to make me sound cool. <laughs> 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 or leave the whole thing in. F*** it. <laughs> <laughs> did you have an, another question that you wanted to ask i lost my train of thought on that what was your initial question ask your questions <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> um i thought you were going to ask me something else actually <laughs> like i just want to make pie and cake for people there is so much joy in that for me it tasted like like a creamy sort of sour thing that made me think of vomit <laughs> i've read several issues of people magazine okay. and enjoyed them thoroughly okay <laughs> um but <clears throat> obviously i'll edit that there's no way that's making obviously it but you guys can know because i trust you <laughs> i'm gonna start that over can I do that? <laughs> Can I give a 40-minute answer? <laughs> Where am I going with this? I'm going to tell one more story. You can cut it if you want. I'm enjoying this. This was fun. That was a fun part. I had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun. Are we already done? Oh, my goodness. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.